welcome everybody to Parashat Vayeshev. It's beautiful to be here in the Safra Shul. I'd like to dedicate our learning today, Lilui Nishmat Edmund J. Safra, Rafael Edmond Ezra Ben Esther and Yaakov Alav HaShalom. It's to his credit that we're all able to learn together in this beautiful edifice, along with the thousands of people learning around the world praying, studying in many of the uh, holy and uh, beautiful institutions that he and his family have uh, instituted. Today, Parashat Vayeshev, I'd also like to dedicate uh, our learning to the Refuah Shelema of Yafa Esther Bat Rachel. Uh, also, of course, this is the week that we are going to hear Besorot Tovot, God willing, together with the incoming Hanukkah holiday, the incoming holiday of light. May our entire nation, our soldiers, our captives, our people who are in need of physical and spiritual redemption, God willing, our, our learning and the learning around the world will work to their merit. And there's no better way to start than with Parashat Vayeshev. Vayeshev is saturated with dreams. We're gonna see Yosef's two dreams. We're gonna see the butler and the baker have dreams. I entitled the class, Realizing Our Dreams. And we have to understand what Chalomot really mean, what Chalomot are. Are they just, as Freud would say, a manifestation of our daily thoughts? Our daydreams are what we see at night, or are our dreams something that depict our greatest potential and who we can become and what we're capable of? And so let's start together in Parashat Vayeshev just to familiarize ourselves with what's taking place in case we don't get a chance uh, to touch on all these pieces. Maybe I'll just give you a huge uh, overview, cliff notes, we start with the word Vayeshev. We take a sigh of relief and we say, okay, Yaakov has been through the mill and back, and it's finally time, Vayeshev Yaakov, finally, after everything he's been through. <coughs> it's Perek 37. Finally, everything he's been through, it's time for Yosef, finally, to catch a break and to relax. Of course, it's going to be nothing of the sort. Life is not that way. There is no true Vayeshev. There is no true settling. We're always constantly on the move. And if we do, at any point, feel ourselves settled, that's when we should be most heightened and most uh, um, alert because Vayeshev for the Jewish people is not a state that we were intended to be in. Our people are going to be on the move. And so we start out with this Vayeshev. We're introduced to the fact that Yosef is a brother with the children of Bilha and Zilpah. Very quickly, there are lines drawn in the sand. Where does Yosef fit into this family? His mother has already passed. Mama Rachel, we lost her last week, she was buried, and now this week it seems that Yosef takes up, takes team, takes side with Bilha and Zilpah. It even seems that the Torah is now showing us that Yaakov's family is possibly two machanot, really is two camps, the children of Leah and then the children of the Shefachot and the 
children of Rachel seem to be in another camp. And I point this out because I think a lot of the story that's going to unfold is because Yaakov's family is in a state of separate camps that a lot of these tragedies that are gonna befall us in this perasha, I'll just quickly say namely, the selling of Yosef, him ending up in an underground pit somewhere in some godforsaken dungeon in Egypt. That's the, towards the end of his trajectory. He ends up in a pit first in the land and then gets taken. He has a difficult story. And also Vayered Yehuda. Both camps have a loss. When the two camps, when the children of Yaakov, when the children of Yisrael are not united, both camps suffer. Yehuda is going to go through a tremendous journey as well. We're going to meet Tamar. She's one of the heroines of this week's Perasha. All of this, I'm just giving it to you as a cliff note so you know what's taking place. And then, of course, once Yosef is in Egypt, we're going to meet Potiphar, his wife. We're going to find Yosef once again in the pit, in the jail, in the dungeon. Sarah Tabachim, the Chamberlain, is going to appoint him the head, and we're going to interact with the two dreamers, the butler and the baker. And finally, towards uh, the end of the Pirasha, we're going to see that Yosef is going to try and architect a way out of his um, imprisonment, we'll call it that. So we have a lot going on. On top of all of that, tomorrow night is Hanukkah. And really, we also need to be aware, and this year, more than ever, we need to immerse ourselves in the energy that Hanukkah is going to afford for us. So maybe we'll take all of these ideas and see what we can bring together. I'm going to start with the beginning of the perasha, and I'm going to get us up to the dreams. And believe it or not, today, of all the dreams, I'm going to focus on Yosef's second dream. But I want to get there in a... Uh, uh, responsible way. So let's read a few Pesukim. Vayeshev Yaakov. Yaakov is going to now settle in Eretz Megure Aviv, in the place that his fathers had settled in, in Eretz Kena'an. And it tells us this is the family. This is the, these are the generations of Yaakov. And we would expect to hear all of his children being named. Except right away, we're jarred where it says Yosef ben Sheva Isreshana. As far as the Torah is concerned, it's going to focus the spotlight and say that the future of Yaakov, his Toledot, his generations, what comes forth from him is Yosef, the 17-year-old Yosef. And this Yosef is Ro'e et Echav. He is a shepherd either with his brothers or for his brothers. He's intended to be the shepherd and guide his brothers, Batson, who, yet he is a Na'ad. He's still an adolescent together with the children of Bilha and the children of Zilpah, the wives of his father. And Yosef used to, Vayaveh, he used to bring Dibatam Ra'ah, Ra'a is a hard word to get around. Ra'a is evil. He used to bring either evil tidings 
or he used to repeat the evil things that his brothers said and bring that to his father. It's a little bit hard to fix this however you read it. He used to bring it el avihem and Yisrael. So if originally it was Yaakov who he was speaking of his genealogy and saying Yaakov's son is Yosef, it wasn't just a personal thing, Yaakov the personal, it's also Yisrael. Yisrael, who is the name of Yaakov that usually connotes a person that is the person that is the representation of the entire nation. It says, Yisrael, Ahav et Yosef. Yisrael also loves Yosef. Mikol Banav, it's really hard to get away from any of these words. They're here in black ink on white parchment and we have to engage with them. We can't sugarcoat this. We reading this are saying, here we go again. Didn't we have a favoritism problem with Abraham and Yishmael? And didn't we have one with Yitzchak and Esav? And now here, the crazy part is that the favorite son is Yosef. And the other one, like Yitzchak's favorite being Esav, that was not the best situation. And it said, also back with something having to do with his, his mouth or his speech. But here, Yisrael loving Yosef from all his children, it quantifies and says why. It could be that he is his son that he finally had in his older age, because you'll remember that Rachel couldn't get pregnant right away. Um, and he makes him kutonet pasim. He makes him this, as Broadway would say, technicolor dream coat. He makes him this striped coat or coat of many colors, which happens to be um, historically, my friend Amalia taught me this. She said that in previous cultures and even till today, the person who was intended to take the leadership over the successor to the throne, to the crown, to whatever position of leadership. It's called the mantle of leadership. The mantle would be this cloak that would be passed down. We even think that maybe Esav's, Esav HaChamudot, maybe he had those big adi because he was supposed to be the one that was going to be the successor. So this idea that Yaakov or Yisrael more Yisrael is concerning for the other brothers because they see that the father is passing the mantle of leadership over to Yosef. And at the same time, the paradox is he's the Ben Zekunim. He's the younger son who's being given the crown. It's concerning, unless you read Ben Zekunim to mean the son that administered Yaakov in his old age, that might fix it a little bit. But there's no way around this. The brothers see this. This does not go unnoticed. <clears throat> that Yosef is the one that their father loves from everybody else. And this is where we start our problem, this word sin'ah. They're harsh words. They hated him. And any lines of communication that you may have hoped to have had with brothers is totally severed and broken. This is going to be, Rabbi Jonathan Sachs is a beautiful uh, thing. He says, where there are no words, there are weapons. 
if you can't communicate, you're headed down the path to war. Lo yachlu, dabro leshalom. The word lo yachlu, the word yachol, means what? Yacholet, to have the ability, but also means vayicholu, to complete. Like the shamayim and the aritz were completed on the seventh day. Vayicholu hashamayim vehaaretz. They couldn't complete each other, which brings us back to this idea that the two camps, not only were they separate, but it seems that they were severed to the point <clears throat> where there was no communication to bring this much elusive shalom. We're going to see the word shalom peppered throughout the story with Yosef. Everything is in a quest for shalom, but yet we can't find it. It's going to keep slipping through our fingers. He's going to look for his brothers. Even when he's in Egypt next week and his brothers come to him, he's going to keep asking the word shalom. Shalom. Is there shalom with your father? Is there shalom? And we're sort of going to take a while to get to that place of shalom, but maybe by recognizing here the very beginnings of what causes these fractures and these factions, maybe we, our generation, can learn from this and be smarter and not have to go through this uh, process that we're going to see here. So let's go through the dreams quickly. By Yachalom, Yosef, Yosef dreams a chalom. Now I always say this, the Torah doesn't waste any words. It could have just said, Vayachalom Yosef. It doesn't have to say vayachalom chalom. What else could you dream other than a dream? So when we see that he dreamt a dream and we see the same word twice, we know it's not just talking about Yosef at that time in Canaan when he's wearing his fancy coat. <clears throat> what Yosef is gonna dream is going to be a reverberating, repet repetitive, it's going to break the tense of times. Yosef's dream is going to be our dream as well. And I'll explain it when we move forward. This dream was not intended only for Yosef. He knows that, because he's gonna repeat it to his brothers. <clears throat> but when we read this dream, we can't read it as only being Yosef's dream. We have to have it relate to us as well. So let's pay close attention to the dream. And he tells what's interesting about this dream is that the Torah, does not tell us its version of the dream and then the dreamer's version of the dream. It goes straight into only giving us, the only access I have to what Yosef dreamt is by the account that he gives of his own dream, which is gonna play an important role because later on with the butler and the Paro's dreams, we're going to be able to hear both versions of what happened. So he tells them, Shim una. Listen here, listen to this chalom. asher chalamti. Listen to this dream. Pay attention if you have your chumashim and you are making notes in it. This word vehine is going to repeat itself at least a minimum of three times, and you'll see it now. Vehine. What does it mean, vehine? Why am I making a fuss about that word? Whenever we see the word vehine in text, it means that God himself is inserted in this story. This is a divinely <coughs> inspired story. Excuse me one second. <coughs> Excuse me. When we see this word, 
in relation to the dreams, if a dream is divinely inspired, what would, could we call it? It's not only a dream, it's prophecy. If the dream is starting with a vehine, he's telling his brothers, this is not the Freudian daydream. This is God speaking to me. I am the prophet. And why would he come to me? Because who do you see wearing the coat? He's going to come to the king, to the leader. He has a message, right? Pharaoh's going to have a dream. What's interesting in the same perashah is the guy who thinks he's so great because he had this dream is suddenly going to encounter who? Two prisoners who also dream. So we have to play a little bit with that as soon as we get there. Let's look at this. And he says, Here we are tying together sheaves, bundles of wheat. If, you were, if there's a echo in your mind when you hear these words of it might be that you're hearing what God had told Rivka when she had two children in her womb and God told her and then what are these two words? One nation will be strengthened either by the other nation or one nation will be stronger than the other nation. When they're me'almim alumim, what do you think Yosef is telling his brothers? You know how God spoke to Grandma Rivka and told her that she's le'om mi le'om? He used those very same words? Well, guess what? I'm going to use that same language to convince you that what I dreamt is divine, is prophecy. So he says we are me'almim alumim, and where are we on top of it? In case you missed all of his cues, he's saying betoch hasadeh. We know that the Sadeh is also the place of divine encounter. That's where Yitzchak sent Esav to get him food. He really wanted him to become more inspired before getting the blessing. Well, that's where Yaakov himself, Yitzchak himself came from. He went, Lasuach Basadeh. The Sadeh was the place where there was a communion between man and God. So what is he saying? I'm in that very place. I'm communing with God. And this is what I see in my dream while God is standing watching over this. Here's that word again. <laughs> so here we are. I didn't play enough with these words. It means in the simplest, what are alumot? The way that they used to protect the cut wheat from just getting lost if there were to be a wind. They would bundle the wheat. And they would tie it together. Do you know, have you ever seen like a stack of wheat? I know we're picturing the standing up wheat with a little pretty bow around it like this. <laughs> but really, if you see a stack of wheat that's pressed hard and tight together, what's so interesting about these tight bundles of wheat? It's almost impossible to separate them. If you try to pluck out one intact wheat from this hardly, tightly packed, enmeshed bundle, you can't. They're all what, what, where one starts, another one ends, and they're all enmeshed with each other. And maybe, as we're reading this, what the Torah is telling us when it records Yosef's dream in this way, 
is saying, brothers, it's time for you to do what? It's time for you to come together. It's time for you to become enmeshed. It's time for you to bundle yourselves together because united we stand. We know that very clearly. United we stand. Divided, we don't stand a chance. And the brothers here are as divided as they ever could have been. And so the dream may have been a what? A solution to tell Yosef, what, what, if you're gonna wear the coat, if you're gonna talk the talk, if you're gonna walk the walk, if you're gonna even think that you're carrying the mantle of leadership, your first job is to do what? Is to bundle yourself together with your brothers. So when they're bundling these sheaves of wheat, they're me'almim alumim betoch hasadeh, all of a sudden Yosef tells his brothers, vekama alumati, my bundle stood up, this is for now for Elana, vegam, Elana, what's the next word there? Nitzava, kama alumati vegam nitzava. We know nitzava and nitzavi means something very particular. His bundle doesn't just get up, it's standing at attention, like a commander with a purpose and a mission. So what is Yosef saying? If you're hearing this dream, we're all together bundling our sheaves, except that mine stands up in a commanding form, and what does it do? It says, Vehineh, this is our third Vehineh, our third divinely inspired part. Tesubena alumotechen, your alumots encircle mine, and they bow alumati, they bow down to my alumah. And right away the brothers have a question. And I don't know if it's a question or if it's a comment. So first I'll say it as a comment, but then I'll reframe it as a question. When the brothers hear this, that Yosef's bundle got up and all their bundles are bowing down to his bundle, what would it sound like to anybody? Oh, very nice, Yosef. I'm happy that you had a dream that we're all bowing down and you're in the middle of the circle and we're all uh, at your, uh, you know, bowing at your feet. That's what it sounds like. Look what they... Yes, and this is what they, this is what they ask. So first, maybe it's a statement. What do you think, Yosef? What are you trying to say? You're trying to say that you're going to be the king over us? Do you think that you're going to rule over us? And they continue to hate him even more because of his dreams and because of his words, because of what he has to say. So let's take this for a minute and understand that maybe they were asking a question. It's the obvious that sounds like is they're saying, Yosef, what are you getting at here? You're getting at that you're going to be a ruler over us and we're going to be bowing down? Except they say it in two ways. They could have just hamaloch timloch aleinu or hamashol timsholbanu. They didn't have to use both versions of ruling. So maybe I'd like to suggest what they were asking is, okay, we accept that you're going to be a ruler. We may hate it, but we just want to know. What type of ruler are you going to be? Are you going to be an absolute dictator, monarch, that doesn't have room for the rest of us? Or are you going to be the shepherd that's going to guide us and that's going to bring everybody in? Are you going to be inclusive or are you going to be exclusive? What type? If we want to even buy into this prophecy that you had, we need to know where we stand in all of this. And what's the problem here? If it's a question, 
Yosef doesn't answer it. And where there's no answer, then people imagine the worst case scenario. And they're thinking to themselves, here's our brother who thinks he's gonna be the monarch. Where's a place for us? There's no place for us. We're lost in this equation. And so what does he do? He doubles down. And this is the dream that I'd like to spend some time on. So they, Vayosifu od seno otode, continue to hate him. Vayachalom od chalom acher. And now he dreams, it seems like a completely different dream. If we didn't see this word acher, we would think it's the same dream twice because it's also going to involve elements that could be interpreted as his brothers bowing down to him. But today I'd like to bring a new suggestion on how I am seeing, maybe in light of the current events, how I am reading this dream. Let's read it together and maybe come up with some uh, ideas. Other, uh, other ideas. Yeah, so let's see. Um, and he tells this dream to his brothers. I'm in verse nine. Vayomer, and he says, Hine, chalamti chalom. Again, he keeps repeating the fact that he dreamt a dream. We know already enough. But he is using the word hine, which we said means God's in this dream. Which, by the way, for somebody who wants to prove to his brothers mm -hmm. that he's experienced prophecy, there's something missing from his prophecy. And I think it's very important because he doesn't insert it till later on in his career. And that is in retelling his dreams, you don't see the name of God anywhere in his dreams. It's not later till he's in the prison, in the dungeon, that he says, oh, doesn't God have uh, solutions? Sipru Nali, tell me your dreams. He doesn't bring God into the picture. He only brings God into the picture to serve his purpose of saying that I'm a prophet. But if you're really a prophet, then every second word out of your mouth needs to be infusing the story with God, which he doesn't do, but notice it anyway. He says, and now we have the Shemesh, the Yareach, and the 11 Kochavim bowing down to me. Just so we know, last time there was a little bit of a degree of separation. You were bowing down to his stalk. Now you're bowing down to to he himself, to Yosef. There's really very little room in this dream to misinterpret that the stars, that the sun, the moon, and the stars are bowing down. And then he tells his, the dream to his father and his brothers. His father admonishes him and says, what is this dream that you dreamt? What do you think me and your mother and your brothers are gonna all come bow down to you, Arta, to the ground? I'd like to bring maybe a different wrinkle to the story. One of the things that should concern us, and we know dreams don't always make sense, like later on, Pharaoh's skinny cows are gonna be swallowing the fat cows, you know, or uh, even Yaakov, he has angels going up and down a ladder to nowhere. I mean, some things don't make so much sense in the physical world, but I think one of the things in this second dream that's so fascinating to me that really the commentaries don't comment on. They say that the sun might be the father and the moon might be the mother. And it's easy because the fact that there are 11 stars, it's easy to make the connection that, there are, that those stars would represent the brothers. But if we stop and think for a minute, there's a crazy thing taking place here. When are the sun, 
and the moon and the stars all at the same place at the same time. What should concern us more than anything else about this dream? What should concern the brothers? What boggles my mind is not that there are 11 stars that are bowing down to him, and not the fact that his mother died, so how on earth do you expect his mother to bow down to him if you decided that his mother was the moon, let's just say. I think more fascinating about the second dream is that you, Yosef is able to experience the stars, the moon, and the sun simultaneously. Now, what do we want to do with that? I found this to be so interesting because there is a time, it's a very short window in our 24-hour cycle of a day. There is a time, it's called Ben Hashemashot, between the suns. Why is it called between the suns? It's from the time that the sun sets till the time that you could see the stars, the stars. Stars are shemashot, stars are suns. So ben shemashot, this little in-between space, is a very, very precarious time. The commentaries try to avoid it at all costs because they're not sure halachically, like if a baby is born ben shemashot. Is it, it's still not pitch black. There's still some light that is either a reflection, it's an, either an earth shine or something that light that the sun had left. But at the same time, it's not the next day yet because we didn't see Tzet HaKochavim, the stars didn't come out. So we're stuck and trapped in this little space called Ben Hashem Ashot, between the suns. And I think this time and this place and this space is what we should be focusing on when we hear Yosef's dreams. Because this space, I'm gonna even go crazy and suggest that the time period we are living in right now, we are, an English terminology might be in limbo, maybe that's a terminology, we're neither here nor there. We could be considered Ben Hashemashot, the big Shemesh, the big light, the big Bet HaMikdash, the big Menorah, the light that was in the world, and God willing, the light that will come, the future Organus that will reveal itself once again, when God is once again going to make us whole and bring us together in a place, in a peaceful existence. Please Hashem, the sooner the better. <laughs> it can't come soon enough. But maybe if we see ourselves now, this time period, as being this time that's Ben Hashem Ashot, that's in between, not fully dark, we're functioning, we're certainly not in the place of light, and we're certainly not in a total, total darkness. And this is the place and the space that Yosef is being given a secret. First of all, the dream is telling him that this place and this space exists. That's something that we should be aware of. So let's talk about this a little bit more. The big debate that the Greek philosophers had, 
the Yevanim, the big issue that they had was, is this world a place where God is ever present? Is God at the center? Is it a theocentric a world where God is theology, with Hashem is at the center of it, or I don't know if I know the word. It's like an anthropocentric or something like that. There's a, a word that describes where the human is at the center of the world. The Greeks believed that humans lied at the center of the world. The Jews believed that God lied at the center of the world. The whole problem that we had in Hanukkah wasn't that we couldn't find oil. Oh, there was plenty of oil. Don't kid yourself in the Beit HaMikdash. There were cartons and cartons of oil. The problem was they needed to find pure oil because the rest of the oil was defiled. And what the Greeks wanted to say was, here, light your candelabras. There's a ton of oil, but we only wanted pure oil because what we wanted to bring into the world was a light that said and expressed <coughs> that the light that comes into the world has a certain purity to it. So let's take a step back. We know when we light our Hanukkah candles, right? We are not allowed to use them. We can't use them as light that we're going to read by them. Ela otam bilvad. The job of the Hanukkah candles or the one who has illuminated their Hanukkah. What is our job tomorrow night? We light the first candle. We're going to see this candle. And what is going on? How do we engage with this Hanukkah? We don't use it for any purposes, only to take a look, only to look at it. So what should we be seeing when we look at the candle? And before I say that, I'll say that by the laws of nature, there are two things that lights that the wick, that's, that the flame where the wick is dipped in oil are going to give us, this is part of its nature. One is light and one is warmth. Light and warmth are going to be emitted from these candles no matter what we do. And so maybe we should stop and think a couple of minutes about what that really represents. Light, we always know Or and Torah is what? To be enlightened, to shed light on something. Light is going to be the intellect. If light is the intellect, then what is warmth? Warmth is the heart, is the emotions. And you know what's beautiful about the menorah is it's going to bring together the intellect with the emotions. I'll just say a minute about the Greek philosophers. They brought philosophy and math and sciences. They brought a ton of uh, um, intellect into the world, but their intellect was a cold intellect. What do I mean by that cold? It was what you would find in the laboratory. It was cause and effect. It was devoid of any emotion. A plus B equals C, and that's it. I don't care how you feel about it. No matter how you feel about it, it has nothing to do with this equation, with cause and effect, with the sciences, with the maths, with medicine. To them, it was all A plus B equals C. And so now that we are dispelling the influence that 
was trying to be imposed upon us by the Greeks, what do we do? When we are looking at the light of the Hanukkiah, we're saying this is an integration. This is a synthesis of light, of knowledge, of intellect, of academia, together with what? With a certain warmth. When I, when I say by this warmth, I, I have to be a little clearer. When we're looking at that wick whose feet are dipped in oil, like Asher, the tribe of Asher, his dip, tabal, or his feet are dipped in oil, what does that mean? What does that mean for us to have our feet dipped in oil? Because if we're going to be the... Like an anointment, so beautiful. So anointment actually is where the oil comes from above to below. It's poured on our heads. I'm so glad that you said that. Because oil is used to anoint, right? It's also very effective if it comes from our feet. What does that mean? When that wick is dipped in the oil, when its feet are dipped in the oil, then what happens to its head? It head ignites and lights up. It sounds a little bit like what? Like that sulam that Yaakov had dreamt, where his feet were mutzav arza and his rosho was magia hashamayim. He who has his feet dipped in oil, I'm making up this proverb, I, I don't know that it, that it exists, but will have his head literally reaching to the heavens like the flame. And this is now going to ask of every one of us to find this type of a balance. A balance between our feet in the oil and our heads in the sky. Here is the, uh, um, the first concept of what we're expecting or hoping to achieve when we look at this Hanukkiah. We have to see ourselves as that, as much uh, um, oil and when I say oil, let's use better words than oil, because shemen is, is, is the Hebrew word for oil. But when we want to absorb from the earth, when we want to absorb from what we have from below, let's go on further. Let's go back to Yosef's dreams for a minute. We have to be able to um, dominate, not dominate, there's a better word. We have to be able to embrace, we have to be able to unify, what's in the physical world, I'll say that. His first dream is saying, take the physical world, maybe I'll use it a little bit different, and I'll say, if we wanna say that warmth is the heart, we know heat expands, heat is expansive, right? It rises, but heat is also expansive. If something's very hot, it's gonna, it's gonna expand, it's gonna grow. Maybe that first dream was telling Yosef, before you look at the stars and the moon and the sun, what do you have to do? You have to go on a horizontal plane. You have to look around like wheat. You ever see how wheat grows? You have to really be able to embrace the entire physical plane that's horizontal. You have to bring all of that together. And once you do, then you'll be able to do what? So that means that you have to, the heart, the emotions have to come before the intellect, before going up, before the light, before the uh, uh, shedding light on and understanding things. 
our understanding, I'll say it simply, has to come from a place of compassion, of inclusiveness, of love. Otherwise, it's a cold, hard knowledge like what the Yevanim were trying uh, to sell us. And so it's, we, I just want to add one extra piece. When we're lighting these lights of the Chanukiah, and we're saying the prayers, and we say, uh, God did miracles for us. We're asking that he does those miracles for us back then, that he performed them for us today. Well, what was one of the greatest miracles? And it's something that we need to really celebrate. And that is that there was a synthesis in the Hanukkah story that we have to focus on today. And the synthesis that I'm talking about, the integration that I'm talking about, is it used to be that either you were the tzaddik or you were the warrior. There were those who went to work, excuse me, there were those who went to fight, who went to war, and there were the ones who stayed home and studied. When I say there was an integration, I mean from the family of the Kohen Gadol. Who were the warriors? The spiritual leaders were the ones who were in the military. The spiritual leaders were the very same people who were on the battlefield. And what does that mean for us today? That means that there cannot be, with the two camps, you do this and I do that, there has to be some type of a coordination, uh, a, a cohesiveness. Thank you, it's a beautiful word. There needs to be a cohesiveness. And I'll give you the two people that are most known for, so you could have an iconic image. If you say that Moshe Rabbeinu, would you say that he is the intellect? Or would you say that he is the fighter? I'm glad you said both. And I'll, I'm glad you said both. So you, some, I'm glad that both answers will be right. You'd say that he's the one who was panim el panim. He spoke to God. How much more of an intellectual person do you want to find? But at the same time, that Moshe, Mr. Intellect, who knew the whole Torah by heart, was the first one to go and fight for his people and go and yell at Pharaoh and tell them time and time again, you let my people go. So it was a great negotiator and he was a warrior and a man of God. I'm gonna give you another person. So Moshe usually typically is cataloged as being the man of God, but he also was able to be a warrior and because he was, he was able to redeem the Jewish people. David HaMelech, I say David HaMelech, the first thing you might say is warrior. Everybody knows David HaMelech, he's the one who got Goliath with the one stone, with the slingshot. But at the same time, challenge yourself and find me another facet of David that would make him one of the greatest men of God. Tehillim, his Psalms, his prayers, his connection to God. When the greatest warrior is able to embrace his godly 
side, his man of God, become, when the warrior becomes a man of God, and the man of God becomes a warrior, then what happens? Now you're going to say, well, where's the salvation with David HaMelech? We're still waiting because Mashiach is Ben David. Why do we say Mashiach Ben David? Because David is again the iconic warrior who's also the man of God. This is what needs to be synthesized. This is what needs to come together. The warmth and the light. You cannot have only one if we want to have the Mashiach idea. And so I'm going to just add in one last piece because it's important to know that the Chanukiah that we like today, which has four arms, you know, eight spots for lights plus the Shamosh, is really a carryover or a different version of the original Menorah. We call ours today a Chanukiah. If you want to buy one and you're Googling it, Google Menorah. But the truth of the matter is if you want to be accurate, what we light in our homes is really called a Chanukiah. And what we lit in the Beit HaMikdash was called a Menorah. Where was the Menorah in the Beit HaMikdash? And this is very important also. So I'll do a little quick tutorial for you. I'm using my east and my west, unless I turn this way, so maybe I'll turn this way. No, my zoomers can't see me. Just make yourself a little diagram or whatever. So this is my east and this is my west. To come into the temple, you'd come in from the east, and on the most western wall would be the Kodesh HaKodashim. Now, if this is west and this is east, then north and south, or north and south, are where my menorah and my lechem hapanim are. Let's talk about this for a minute. I'll take the lechem hapanim, literally the showbread uh, on the table. We'll address that first. That was situated to the north. And why that's important to me is because opposite that is the menorah, which is situated to the south. What is the importance for us to know that the menorah was situated in the south? So let's talk about the Yosef story. This keeps happening to us. What keeps happening to us? When there is an exile, which way do we go? We go south. This dream that Yosef is having is actually the beginning of our exile. Because he has the dream, the brothers want to sell him. Because they sell him, he goes to Egypt. Because he goes to Egypt, they follow him in a famine. And the next thing you know, we're stuck there for 210 or 400 years, however you want to do the math. But this dream starts the ball rolling for the exile. What does that have to do with my menorah being in the south? Torah, God, in all of his wisdom, placed the menorah specifically in the south because he knew that when we go south, we're going to need to take the light with us. You know, in the, in the Beit HaMikdash, little interesting fact, the way the windows were designed, any architect in your home today would design the window to bring in the light. The way that the walls would be angled would be to bring in as much light as possible. 
But the Beit HaMikdash was designed in a way so that the light could go out of the Beit HaMikdash. Because the light of the menorah was so intense that it could illuminate the entire city. So the fact that the menorah is south should be for us, even if only a, um, even if only, I can't think of that word, uh, we're, uh, even if it's only something that we're imagining, I can't come up with it, but Fixation. anyway, huh? Fixation. No, it, it, I'm thinking of, hmm? symbolic maybe is the word. Even if only symbolic, the menorah is on the south so that it could illuminate us even when we decline, even when we go into exile, even when we are down or we're depressed. That menorah is facing us so that we'll never be in the south. We'll never be in exile without some form of light. And the flame it, goes up. The flame goes up and the light is expansive. Exactly. So this idea of the expanse and going up. At the same time, this idea of the... Um, I was going to say something before that. Give me one second. Oh, this idea of the menorah being in the south. We have a Hebrew saying, Yerida letzorech aliyah. The way of the Jewish people, and we hold on to this for dear life, especially after a Yerida, especially after the Yerida that we have experienced, we have to hope and pray that that Yerida has a purpose. It's Litzorich Aliyah, so that we could rise up. I don't know how or why, but I do know that this is part of God's design. We go down, Yerida, Litzorech Aliyah, so we could come up again. Much like the wick, it goes down so that it could serve a purpose of bringing a tremendous light. This menorah, this idea of uh, going down, is going to manifest itself throughout the perashah. Yosef is going to go down. Yehuda is going to go down. Maybe let's talk about Yehuda for a minute because his Yerida is going to also be a Litzorech Aliyah. So I'll give you a little background on the Yehuda story quickly and tell you that Yehuda played a role in Yosef's sale. His, the role that he plays specifically, if you'll turn the page, is, um, oh no, no, don't turn the page. Yeah, turn to um, verse 26. It's on page 204 towards the middle. Reuven has a plan that he's going to hide Yosef in the pit. And when nobody's looking, he's going to save him. Yehuda sees this plan and says, Vayomer Yehuda tells his brothers, What is the use of killing our brother? And then we're going to just, it's going to be a mess after we kill him. We're going to have to cover up his blood. It's a, forget about it. Better, Let's sell him to the Yishmaelim. 
And this way our hands won't be upon him. It's too much of a mess to kill him and then there's blood on our hands and then we have to dig a hole and we have to cover him with a mess. So instead, let's sell him to the Ishmaelim. Ki achinu besarenuhu. I don't know if he's speaking about Yosef. He's our brother. Let's not kill him. Let's just sell him. After all, it's a little bit chilling that in the same sentence that you're thinking of selling your brother, you're also mentioning that he's your that he is your brother. Or it could be read that what? Who's the Achinu? Ki Achinu? Maybe Yishmael. At least if we sell him, we'll be selling him to a brother. So he'll go from being our brother to his long-lost brother, the Ishmaelim are also our brothers. Either way you read it, Yehuda is at the forefront of having Yosef be sold and be taken down all the way to Egypt. And part of this story, where I'm telling you that the Menorah is accompanying us, that it's positioned in the south, that the light of that Menorah will be with us, bless you, in the south, is the story that we're going to learn from Yehuda. He may be the hero of the story, but the uncontested heroine is gonna be Tamar. I'll tell you her story quickly. Yehuda has three sons, Er, Onan, and he has a third son, Shela. He gives the first son, Er, to this woman, Tamar, and this Er is evil in the eyes of God. God kills him. And the way it works is, if a woman who's married to your son, if the son dies, you give her your next son so that they could have a child and build up the name of the first son. So he gives his second son, Onan. And it's a little bit graphic, so you're not gonna like the story so much, but I'll keep it as G-rated um, as I can. When, this, when uh, Onan is given to Tamar, it says, I'll read it to you so you, you could hear it uh, in, in a better way. Vayeda um, Onan, Onan knows, the second son knows that if he impregnates Tamar, that child is not going to be his. It's gonna be named for his brother. Not only is it gonna be named for his brother, it's gonna inherit what was his brother. This is the mitzvah of Yibum, why it's such a big mitzvah, is because the second son who impregnates the wife of his late brother really has nothing to gain. If anything, this child that's born is gonna be sort of like a bechor. It's gonna be above him. It's gonna inherit double. It's gonna have all of these uh, um, halachic ramifications. So he knows that the Zeda is not gonna be. So when he would come to the wife of his brother, Veshichet Arza, he would spill his seed to the ground. His name is Onan. The word Onanism is exactly this, not allowing for the woman to get pregnant, rather spilling the seed on the ground. That's as graphic as I'm gonna get for you. But also, Hashem finds this to be a horrible thing. It's evil in the eyes of God, and God has him killed too. Now, who's looking like the Black Widow? Who looks like the bad news? Poor Tamar, she's married to two losers, both evil in the eyes of God. They both die, but somehow she gets a bum rap, and her father-in-law tells her, go sit in your father's house. 
wear the clothing of a widow and wait there. When my third son, Shela, is old enough, I'll call for you. Yeah, right. Like there's any chance that he's giving, even though this kid's name is Shela, which sounds like what? Shela, like it's hers. But he has no intention of giving his third son to Tamar. I only brought you to this story because Tamar has to take matters into her own hands. She hears that her father-in-law is in town stealing his sheep. She goes to this place called Petach Enayim, which means open your eyes for goodness sake. She's hoping that her father-in-law is going to see her, or even better, be with Shela in tow. But of course, he doesn't bring Shela, and he doesn't see her. She takes a tsaif, she takes a veil. A veil, a tsaif, is exactly what Rivka had worn when she was going to marry Yitzhak. She covers her face with a tsaif. So we're reading this story. It may seem to you, as you find out and it unfolds, that she betrayed Yehuda, the daughter-in-law who posed as the prostitute, so that she could consort with her father-in-law. That's how you might see the story. But Tamar is a heroine, why? She does the math like this in two seconds. Here she is all dressed up and no place to go. She's wearing her wedding gown and her veil. And this Yehuda has no clue who she is, nothing. They have an entire conversation and a negotiation where he proposes, he makes a proposition as if she's a prostitute. He promises her a gedaye izim, one of the little sheep from his flock. And she says, how can I trust you? I need a collateral. And he says, what do you want? She said, I'll take your ring, your petilim, your coat, and your staff. These are things that are worthless. You put them on eBay, nobody will pay $2 for them. But they're only worth money to who? They only have a value to the owner. He says, okay, you could have these. He knows that she'd much quickly hand them over to get a real uh, animal that she could use the milk and the wheat and wool. <coughs> Long story short, they consort and she gets pregnant. Now she has a scarlet letter on her. She's supposed to be sitting like a good little girl in her father's house waiting for Shela. But she does the math and she realizes that if I do that, I'm nowhere. And not only that, Shela might ne never get married. And if Shela never gets married and I never get married, that's the end of the line of Yehuda's family. I'm going to use three words. We hear them in our Haggadah. And these are the words we have to hang on to. And they're called chishev et haketz. You know what Tamar does? She figures out the end of the story at the very beginning. What does that mean? She took that collateral because she already quickly ran through the whole story. She said, if I happen to get pregnant and I happen to be placed at the stakes, because that's where they're gonna burn me at the stake, then at least I'll have these identifying elements and objects. And what happens is a series of miracles, because we all know from Romeo and Juliet, one little moving part goes wrong and the whole thing is over. She's, when they're about to literally burn her, she takes a shawl, she wraps these three things and she says, send them to Yehuda. And she says, the owner of these belongings is the father of my child. And he recognizes, so everybody makes Yehuda the hero. He said, Sadekami Meni, she's more tzadeket than I am. And I'd like to say, Tamar, 
who gives birth to twins and is so beautiful that she has twins because she lost two husbands. So now God gives her two children. She calls one Peretz and she calls one Zarach. Peretz, Paratzta, to spread forth, he's the one that you're gonna see in Megillat Rut. He's the one who's gonna be the forefather of David HaMelech, of Shlomo, and of Mashiach. And why did I bring you this whole story? It's because in order for Mashiach to come, today, before the end unfolds, we have to be the ones who are going to script the ending. In order to realize dreams, we have to play an active role in their fruition. We can't just have these dreams and have these aspirations and hope and say, God, we want Mashiach now. We have to bring Mashiach. How does she bring Mashiach? She acts today and figures out that if I do my part, I don't know if I'm gonna get pregnant or not, I don't know if I'm gonna have twins or not, I don't know if I'm gonna end up being burnt at the stake and the guy took a left turn and my damning evidence never got to Yehuda. I don't know what's gonna happen. <clears throat> but I know my job. And my job is to do what I can do in the physical world that's in my potential to do. If I am able to do my part, you know what? If Yehuda, thank you, if Yehuda. <clears throat> If Yehuda could end up going through this crazy route and this crazy way to end up bringing Mashiach, I can't script how Mashiach's gonna come, but I can say what is it that is within my realm of possibility? What can I do? And in this time that we're in right now, this time that we're Ben Hashem short, halachically, initially, that's the time that the candles were supposed to be lit. The candles were supposed to be lit Ben Hashem Ashot. Why? Because it's in this very time that we're not sure. We're not in complete darkness, but we're not in complete light. And in this place of uncertainty, and I'll say this, when we're in complete light, there's no need for the candles. When we're in complete darkness, it's over. We don't have the ability to strive or light or make an effort. And so it's during this time, Ben Hashem Ashot, this precarious time where we're not here and we're not there, that we have to make a choice. And the choice is we need to illuminate ourselves. We need to ignite ourselves. We need to literally be the light that this world needs most desperately. It's now that we need the light. <clears throat> Once the sun comes up, we're done. Or once the stars come out, it's over. It's Ben Hashem Ashot that we have an opportunity that when somebody asks, is this a time of light or is this a time of darkness? Right now we might be inclined to say our world is lights out, our world is in a very dark place. And then the Torah comes and says, I'm sorry, you don't get to make that call. You don't get to make that choice. Because if you choose to see yourselves or the world in a place of decline like Yehuda, if you see yourselves all the way in the bottom, the Torah is begging us, take a look at Yosef. He too was in an underground tunnel. 
he too was all but lost for. His picture would be on the wall upstairs saying, taken. He was taken with no good reason, no trial, no nothing. And he, like God willing, all of our innocent people who deserve to be like Yosef, not just spared. What are we praying for? We're praying that they go from Yagon to Simcha. We don't, we're not asking for neutral even. Why? Because Nisim are all around us. This is the holiday where this is the time to say Hashem. I'm not going to ask small because if I ask small, it means you could only do a little. You could do the infinite, the eight, the eight days of Hanukkah, infinity, beyond anything in the natural world. What we're asking now is for all of us, because we are in our own personal dungeons. I don't know about anybody else, but it's a very hard time to just, you know, function. And on top of that, we don't allow ourselves God forbid we should smile or be happy or, or God forbid the other way. We, we don't allow ourselves to be disappointed. We don't allow ourselves, how dare I be annoyed or disappointment when there's people suffering in the condition that they're suffering. You know what that's doing to us? It's turning us into the straws that are gonna break the camel's back. Meaning, we are going to literally crack up because with emotions, you have to go through them, and we're not going through any of them. Something happens, I don't know you, your kid didn't get into the college he wanted, You're, you got a ticket, put whatever would normally annoy you to some degree, you say, how can I complain that my kid didn't get into the A class when this other person's kid is un unaccounted for? How dare I? And what happens when we take all of these disappointments and we don't experience them, they just pile and pile and pile, because we don't think we have a right to experience them. How dare I? And then what happens? Then we just totally crack up. Then the smallest thing happens, you burn the bread and all hell breaks loose because you can't handle one more disappointment. And so here we are in this time of Ben Hashem Ashot, and it's easier to be depressed, and it's easier to sympathize and the challenge that God is giving us this Kislev and this Hanukkah, bless you, the challenge that he's giving us is he's saying, in this time of Ben Hashem Ashot, get your act together, dip your feet in oil, do what you gotta do, but our world needs light. And the light is not gonna come from your defeat and from your depression. The light is gonna come from your belief that there are more nisim to come, that the best is yet to come, that chishevet haketz, like Tamar, who imagined that the end is gonna be good even though they're preparing her to literally burn her at the stake. Like Miriam, who tells them to pack tambourines while they're still in Egypt because we're gonna have reason to celebrate like Yael who invites Sisra into her tent and ends up feeding him milk and ends up killing him, she is already thinking of the victory, of the success at the end, and most like Yehudit. She's the heroine of Hanukkah. Yehudit is the one that invites the Greek general. She feeds him cheese and wine, and she puts him in a 
stupor. And again, I don't want to be graphic, but she ends up taking his head to the general of our armies and she says, guys, the war is about to be over. The general is dead. It's time for us to rise up again. We can't rise up. We can't be aflame unless we make that choice. Unless we choose today to say there are more miracles headed our way. Bayamim hahem bazman hazeh. When is it the hardest to see the miracles? I'm so far away from the light. I don't know if I'll ever see the light again. People tell me, I don't know if I'll ever laugh again. I don't know if I'll ever be carefree again because we're so removed. We're in the Ben Hashem Ashot. And it's especially during this time that God says, this is when I want, I know halachically we wait till the stars come out, but originally in the Gemara, this was the time there was a just and if anybody needs to leave I'm sorry I went over time but there was a very interesting story of Rabbi Ishmael his nephew asked him I learned the whole Torah could I now learn the Greek arts and the Greek philosophy the Greek sciences and he said there's only one time that you could learn all that because you have to learn Torah yomam valayla day and night your studies your focus should be on Torah but ben Hashem Ashot, and it's not light, and it's not day, that's the only time that you can learn the philosophy. And I'd like to add to that and say what we want to learn from their philosophy is that their truths are cold and hard. Their truths are lacking the warmth, the emotion, the human, and the divine. And it's Ben Hashem Ashot that originally was decreed to be the time to light the Hanukkiah so that we could infuse the time of confusion, the time of Irbubia. Erev means Irbubia. It's a mixture of night and day. For us, for the Jewish people, it's not a mixture. It's the symbol <coughs> of the menorah that was placed in the south. It's the symbol that's going to lighten up our exiles. <coughs> I'm so sorry. And it's the symbol that's not only going to accompany us during this dark time, but it's going to bring a light. And this light, God willing, will change. And we know with one, one flick, one light, you can light up an entire room. This could change for us as well. Nisim are still alive and well. If Yosef could go from the dungeons to the throne, and he could be second to the king, then that's what I pray for every one of us. Whether we're in a real physical dungeon, whether we're in a depression that's like a dungeon, whether we're imprisoned from the images or the stories or the articles that we've read, it's time for us to come out of the dungeon it's time for us to sit on that throne that God has given us. And from there, we will be in a position of strength. We will feed like Yosef nourished his brothers. And we will know that this is just part of a process. This is just the beginning of this exile. But Yosef and all those people are ultimately going to be once again collected and brought back to Eretz Israel in a safe safe, peaceful place again. We're only going to get back there if we realize that we're just now in the middle. 
The sun will come up tomorrow and it will shine again. And until it does, we're going to use the candles as a symbol for the greatest light that's yet to come. I wish you all a happy time.